Thank you, McNairs, for sharing that story of faith. My name is Dan Spino. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at West Shore Free Church, and I get to continue in our time of story of faith, sharing stories of faith. We're going to look at a story in the life of David here in just a moment. Um, I'm going to pause here, though. Let me, let me pray for our time, pray for our time in God's word um, as we get started, as I get started. So if you would join me for another word of prayer. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you for the work that you are doing, the work that you have done all throughout the morning here. Um, some of us have come from training arenas, have been learning and how to engage a culture in our faith. Uh, some of us are just coming in here this morning. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to transition well, to sit under the authority of your word, to hear your word preached. Um, Lord, I offer myself as your vessel to, to preach your word. So as we've been worshiping you in song and scripture and prayer and in hearing stories of you at work in people's lives, I ask that you would continue now, continue that work, help us to continue to worship you as we look at the life of David. So help us now, Lord, to, to hear what you want us to hear for your glory. Amen. Well, I have the, the, the difficult task, um, I use that word intentionally, difficult task of sharing with you from 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath. Difficult only in the sense that it is one of the most famous, familiar stories in all of scripture. Um, you probably have heard of, if you're new here, if, you, if this is the first time you've ever set foot in church at all, you probably have heard of Noah's Ark, Jonah and the whale, David and Goliath, probably the Christmas story as well. These are very common, familiar stories. Um, sometimes, though, the familiarity that we have, the understanding that's been given to us, uh, isn't necessarily the intention of the story. Um, our story today is David and Goliath. I'm going to refer to it as David and this Philistine, um, and we'll get there in a moment why. When I was in seminary school, I took a class with a professor named Dr. Dennis McGarry. Um, I told first service we call him Mad Dog McGarry behind his back. I think Trent said they called him Scary McGarry. Is that right? Yeah, so he had, clearly this guy's a little intimidating. Um, but he's just a phenomenal, phenomenal professor. He loves God's word. His, his knowledge of the ancient languages is just par none. Um, he just, really, he, just, he has a thirst for God, for knowing God as he truly is. And in his class, we actually translated the book of Ruth, which is awesome. So the ancient uh, Hebrew language and from back into English, so translating Ruth. And to start, of, to start us off, he, he was up in front of the class, and he's like, you know, some people like to preach the book of Ruth like on Mother's Day, around Mother's Day. And they like to tell of this story of a, of a mother and the love for her daughter-in-law and the daughter-in-law's love for her mother and just the perfect model of that. And, and then his tone would change, his face turns beet red, and then he'd start preaching. And he'd say, <laughs> I'm going to do it for you here. He'd say, that's a nice story, but that's not the story. Stick to the story. It says in the day when the judges were judging, there was a famine in the land and there was a man of Judah. I love that. That tone is beat red. It, just, it was awesome. It's, it's become actually a phrase in our household that we have adapted. I, I use it often. My wife, who's the funniest person I know, uh, just without, without even warning, she'll just like whip it out from time to time in a funny voice. That's a nice story, but that's not the story. I love it. I love it. I told her I was going to do that, so it's okay. <clears throat> 
This is, this is what we're facing here in our story of David and this Philistine. Our understanding of the story has kind of gone askew. Uh, I've been asking people, I've been having meetings, uh, just I knew this was coming up, so I've been talking to people in my family, friends. Um, I actually, one of my friends I had breakfast with went to work and took it upon himself to ask his friends, what's the meaning of David and Goliath? Uh, and if you do a Google search, these, this is the kind of answers you're going to hear. These are the answers that we've, we've pulled together. Uh, David and Goliath is a story of the unexpected leader. It's a, it's a story of standing against insurmountable odds. It's a story of preparation or having the right tool to get the job done. Or, or my favorite, or actually my least favorite, the underdog can beat the favored person. On any given day, you have a chance to win. That actually came from somebody from Buffalo. If you're a sports fan, you get that. Yeah. <laughs> Never comes true. <clears throat> Probably my favorite, though, is Malcolm Gladwell, an author who, who took the time to write a whole book about his understanding of David and Goliath. And people buy this book. You should not, by the way. Um, his understanding might be slightly askew. I actually watched a TED Talk. It's a 15-minute TED Talk. If you're bored and you want to get angry, you should watch this TED Talk. Um, in it, he tells us his understanding of the story, and he argues, or what he says is that the very thing that was a source of Goliath's strength is a source of his weakness. He builds this whole argument up that Goliath has this illness, um, and because of his illness, he was slow, he was blind, he was weak, uh, so what was the source of his strength is actually the source of his weakness. And then he actually he concludes his talk with this. He says, there's an important lesson in this. Giants are not as strong and powerful as they seem. And sometimes a shepherd boy has a sling in his pocket. Hmm, that's a nice story. But that's not this story. In fact, I was reading, I wanted to take my shoe off and like throw it at my computer. Like how dare this man take God's word and manipulate it to write a book, to prove a point. As followers of Christ, it is so important, so important that we know God's word as it is not as we want it to be. The way we understand stories will impact the way that we have a relationship with our God. So when we look at this story, then the question is, well, what is the main point of this story? I would argue the main point is the condition of your heart impacts how you hear and see and ultimately how you respond. What we see in this text is that it's David is the only one whose heart is so steadfast for the Lord that he hears correctly, he sees correctly, and he responds well. Only David. This story is not about Goliath. <laughs> we like to tell people it's about Goliath. That's why I actually refer to him as this Philistine. In this, in this story, he's, he's really not that important. I feel comfortable saying that because scripture really tells us so. Do you know how many times his name is mentioned in this text? 58 verses in this chapter. you know how many times his name is mentioned? Twice. And in all of scripture, all of scripture, his name is mentioned four times, twice here, and then two other times. It's in chapter 21 or so, and it's actually in reference to his sword. There's a story about his sword, and then that story gets repeated. So it's actually the same story told twice, only two times in this story. The moment David is introduced into our story, Goliath becomes, does not become important anymore. We, the, Goliath is now referred to from the time David is in as this Philistine or the Philistine or this uncircumcised Philistine 20 times, 20 times, over 20 times from the time David is, is introduced in the story. In fact, in the whole chapter, he's referred to as the Philistine or this Philistine 27 times. His identity 
does not matter. He's not important, but people's hearts are. This is a story about heart conditions, and your heart condition impacts how you hear and see and ultimately how you respond. I'm going to take a few moments here, and I'm going to read our text for us. I'm going to put some boundaries up. We're going to do verse 3 through 50. It's, it's, a, it's a ton of text, but I want you to hear God's word as it is in its purest form from the Bible. I know we all have busy weeks. Some of us won't be able to turn back to the story. I want you to hear it here today. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 3. And we're going to go right to verse 15. We're going to stop there. As I read, I want you to pay attention. We're going to have it up on the slide. Thank you. Um, and as I read, I want you to pay attention to how many times a phrase like hearing or seeing or some sort of response to hearing and seeing is said and then the response to that. So they hear something and then they respond. Pay attention to that. So picking up in verse 3. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on, the, on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze and he had a, and on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle and the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, the next uh, Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David's son, take for, you, for your brothers an, an ephah of this par- parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their, of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they, that's David's brothers, and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left, left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage. And he ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him. And were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. 
And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words of David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for, for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword, that's, that's Saul's sword, over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. This is the word of the Lord. The condition of your heart impacts how you hear and see and ultimately how you respond. 
This is our Luke 6.45 moment. Luke 6.45 says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil of his treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the heart comes our responses. Out of the heart comes our reactions, our responses to various stimuli around us, to what we hear, to what we see. It comes out of our heart. A healthy heart then is a heart that is after God's own heart that desires what he desires and yearns for him. This is what we see in David. In this text, we see there are three things that can shape the condition of your heart. The first one is who or what you allow to identify you will shape your heart. The people of Israel forgot who they were. They allowed Goliath to come and to ascribe an identity to them. Did you catch that? In verse eight, he says, am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? translation of that could be, are you not slaves of Saul? The answer to that question is no, they're not. They're actually servants of the most high God. Not that this is a time to pull out the grammar hammer here and hit this guy with it, but you would think that somebody in the people of Israel, the Israel that called out the unique special place, the ones who traverse with God, who have stories of God, who understand that their identity is completely wrapped up in God, may have had some sort of objection with being called slaves to Saul. The problem was is that it was a true identity of who they've become. They've exchanged a relationship with God for a relationship with this king. Saul himself forget, forgot his identity. He forgot that he was king. And in 1 Samuel 9, 16, God says, God speaks and he says about Saul, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. This was Saul's shining moment. Saul himself is a giant. He's taller than any other Philistine. This could have been a clash of the giants. <laughs> Instead, Saul forgets who he was. He forgets the special anointing that he had, that he was called out to lead God's people. He forgot that he was king. In an interesting story in verse 55 and towards the end of the chapter, you're going to see Saul and Abner talking. Uh, they're actually talking when David leaves Saul's presence. It's kind of like a throwback. Like uh, while David left to go talk to Goliath, uh, Saul and Abner are speaking. Saul is the king of the army. Abner is the commander of the army. Where are the people? They're out fighting the Philistines. <laughs> As they're chasing the Philistines, Saul and Abner are back having a conversation asking, who is this? Who's the son of, who's this guy's dad? They're trying to find out who he is. The source of their identity issue is that they all forget who God is ultimately. This Philistine is the first. He's allowed to come forward and defy the living God, the armies of the living God. He's basically defying God. He is blaspheming against God. When we read that verse, we should think, oh man, there's that guy's death sentence. Because nobody blasphemies God and lives. The Israelites know this. Nobody does, but he forgot who God is. By the way, that's why I hate the underdog understanding of the story, because who is this battle against? It's Goliath versus God. <laughs> Who's the underdog? It's, it's Goliath. The Israelites forget who God is. They're more worried about the prize. They're more worried about the tax-free living and marrying Saul's daughter who, for whoever might step forward and fight this person. They forget they forget about God. Saul forgot about God's promises for him as well. There's all kinds of identity misalignments happening here, and it's impacting how the Israelites should respond. Their hearts are being misshaped by the situations around them. In 2013, I got to hear Andy Crouch speak at a conference 
Um, he spoke several times, but in this one particular session, it really stands out to me because he, he taught us a song, and he sang the song. He had us sing it with him. I love you all, so I won't sing it for you because it's not a gift that I have. Um, but this song that he shared with us, it was a song that the slaves who were brought here against their wills, he said, treated as property, crammed into ships, sang through their hard days of labor, their song of faith. And as he was explaining the song, this is what he said. He said, stretched to the limit was their commitment to faith, and still they sang of their faith. There must, the title of the song was There Must Be a God Somewhere. He said, there must, in spite of the whole history, in spite of all that I see, in spite of the whole history of the human story, in spite of the fact that I don't see him, there must be a God somewhere. Now Andy explained, this is not a loose understanding. This isn't some liberal theology of like some God somewhere. That's, that's not the point of this song. The point of this song through words and through the strategic long pause is that there is a God and they kept their eyes on him. This is what David shows us. David knows that there is a God, that God is alive and present. David's identity is completely wrapped up in God. David's heart is shaped by two important things. One is that he does not forget who God is. Whereas Goliath's name is actually only used twice. In three verses, in verses 45 through 47, we see David using God's name five, five times in three verses. He says, the Lord of hosts, in verse 45. The God of the armies of Israel, and again in 45. The Lord will deliver. The Lord saves. The battle is the Lord's. Five times he's calling on the name. He knows who God is. He has not forgotten about the identity of God. And because of that, second, he knows who he is in light of that identity. He knows that he is a child of God. He won't let anyone change that. It's a relationship that's been forged over time. Forged over time of being out in the wilderness, fighting off lions and bears as God shows up and does a fight. He delivers, he says. God, my God delivers. God delivers him. He knows his identity in God. He is confident of that, and nobody can take that away from him. So as we reflect on this text, I think that there are several things that we can talk about that maybe rob us of our identity. There are several things that try to stake a claim on our identity, try to shape who we are. I'm sure there's lots of examples. I, could, I thought of two that had a personal impact on my life. I thought I'd share them with you. Maybe, they, maybe this hits home for you. The first one is the most seemingly insignificant small thing in the world, and that's my phone. <laughs> I let my phone have a, claim a sense of identity on me. I go to my phone for a sense of accomplishment, you know, that thrill of getting an email, of sending off a message, or getting a text message back, or something. There's like this sense of accomplishment, a sense of purpose. My identity becomes wrapped up in it. I become addicted to it. When I'm bored, I grab my phone. I don't know what to do with myself. I go to my phone, I take another hit, <laughs> get that high because I'm addicted to it. I'm searching for, for this sense of identity in my phone and what it gives me. If your phone or any device is removed from your life for any number of reasons and you feel a loss of identity, you might have a problem that you need to press into. If you can't go out the door without your phone, if that causes a level of panic, you might want to press into that. The second one that stands out to me is this sense of comparing. And I know I'm not alone. 
we like to compare ourselves, don't we? We like to look at other people and see what they have, see their lives or what we imagine their lives to be, this perfected life that they might have. And then we make judgments either about them or about ourselves. We try to find our own identity and kind of this comparison metric, if you will. If your identity economics are based on comparisons, you're always going to end up with a deficit, always. Don't let your sense of identity come from comparing who you are to somebody else. So what can we say about this text? I think that there's a few things then we can say about this text. The first thing, no matter where you are on your faith journey, if you even don't even believe in God, you need to hear that you are made in the image of God. Every human being on the face of the earth is made in the image of God. We are all image bearers. At the very least, we can have that be our identity marker. If you're not walking with Jesus, my guess is that there's this longing inside of you that's trying to figure out the, the identity image of who you're in. You're made in somebody's image. You're made in God's image. And there might be a disconnect because you haven't figured that out just yet, who God is. Hear the words of Jesus. Come to him. Come. Find rest. Find identity. Find purpose. Find freedom. Find shalom. Find peace. For those that call Jesus their Lord and Savior, never let someone change your identity as a child of God. In fact, in Romans eight seventeen, it says that you are an heir to the throne. You're an heir to the throne. I'm an heir to the throne. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I'm an heir to the throne. God tells me so. Our God's a king. And he adopts me as his son. And I'm an heir to the throne. Nobody can take that away from me. Nobody. Don't let anyone rob that identity from you. Why let others dictate who you are when your identity is secured and sealed? We just sang about this just 10 minutes ago. Secured and sealed in Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Why let your identity be shaped by the circumstances which are fickle and always changing that are all around you? Who and what you let shape your identity will impact the health of your heart. The second heart shaper we see is who or what you allow to have authority over you will shape your heart as well. The number one authority figure in this whole story is fear. Fear. Fear has an amazing amount of authority over the people of Israel, over Saul, arguably even over Goliath at some point. Fear is the authority and it drives their responses. Did you catch in verse 11 it says they heard this Philistine, and they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And verse 24 says, they saw him and they fled and they were much afraid. Saul himself and his response to David is all, it's, it's all essentially based on fear. He says, you can't beat this guy. He's big and scary. You can't do that. Now there's two other authority figures in our text. We Saul, he's the king. He has a level of authority. Goliath himself obtained some level of authority, but really fear Fear is the chief authority figure in this story. It's fear that ultimately rules them. And what you give authority to in your life will lead you. It will shape your heart. It will inform how you hear and how you see. And honestly, we're not that different from the people of Israel. My guess is if I asked you, you would struggle with some level of fear. Some of you might say stress is your number one kind of authority figure in your life. I would probably stress based on fear it's probably some level of underlying fear in there. We either, and then when we have fear, what do we do? We seek control. We try to control things. Or maybe we run and hide. It's that fight or flight syndrome. At times, maybe we even try to dull our senses. I'm afraid, so I'm going to sit down and just binge watch TV. I'm afraid I'm going to pull out my phone. I'm afraid I'm going to eat a bag of Utz barbecue potato chips. 
felt so good to get that off my chest. (laughs) Ultimately, fear-based authority causes health conditions. Now hear me, I'm not trying to preach the prosperity gospel. That's not what I'm talking about. But if if fear is your authority figure in your life, you're probably experiencing some level of of health condition either uh, physically or spiritually. I'm not trying to say, believe Jesus and all is going to be well with you. That, that's not the point. But you're probably, if you're struggling with fear, you're probably worrying about something unnecessarily. You probably have anxiety, a high level of anxiety about one particular thing. This thing probably keeps you up at night. You're probably experiencing sleepless nights. That's my guess. Or maybe you feel overly stressed all the time. That's, that's what fear does. When you have an inappropriate authority figure in your life, they will lead you in inappropriate ways. When you look at David, David is the exact opposite of what we see in this text from the, from the Israelites. In verse 23, he hears this Philistine giving out his war cry and he, he doesn't react. He says he hears them, but notice it doesn't say then David was afraid, right? He presses in. This shepherd boy whose faith has been cultivated in the wilderness while watching sheep, fighting off bears, fighting off lions, hearing the stories of his faith handed down to him over time, all the stories of, way of which God delivers. My God, the deliverer, he knows that about God. This shepherd boy, he asks, who is going to step in in the name of God and deal with this mess? Who is this Philistine? Who does he think he is? How dare he defy my God? That's David's response. Instead of fear, David says, let no man's heart fail because of him. Essentially what he's saying is don't let this authority figure or this fear-based authority change your heart. Don't let it change your understanding of who you are and who God is. My God delivers. My God fights for his children. This is not your battle. It's his and he's going to win. And what I know is that there is no God greater, stronger, more assured without any doubt than my God. He even says his name, Yahweh, my God, the Lord, L, capital L-O-R-D. That's his proper name. David is not afraid to say it. And God alone is my authority figure. That's what David says. That's David's response. In spite of all of what's going around him, he sees Goliath and he looks and he sees God. He looks at Goliath and he sees God. This is our story as well. This is our God as well. Choose your response. You can run away or you can seek control, that fight or flight, or you can trust God. You can let that authority figure, fear, have its proper place of authority under Jesus. You can allow your fears to move out of the driver's seat and kind of put them in the back seat and let Jesus drive for a little while. Let him be your authority, even over your fears. Give them to him. Press into him. He has something he wants to tell you. He'll lead you. He promises he will. He's given us the Holy Spirit who's speaking to you right now in some capacity. Are you listening? Are you hearing? There's only one person who should have authority over your life, and that is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus. That's what David understands. That's a sign of a healthy heart, one that submits to proper authority figures in your life. And finally, the third, the third sign of, a, of diagnosing a heart is who or what allow to, you allow to inform you will shape your heart. Who or what you allow to inform you will shape your heart. So we go from identity to authority to, to inform. Now in this text, it's not necessarily who David allows to inform him. It's who David doesn't allow to inform him. Everybody has something that they want to say to David. 
Everybody does. The men of Israel, his brothers, the king, even Goliath himself. In verse 26, David said, What shall be done for the men, for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The, the men of Israel, their response? Well, you're going to get a prize. <laughs> the guy that does this, whoever it might be, is going to like get to marry the king's daughter and have a tax-free living. Isn't that great? He was like, no, guys, you heard me, but you totally missed a question. That's not what I was asking. I'm not after a prize. I'm after my living God. Who's stepping up? Somebody's got to. Who's going to do it? I'll do it. That's essentially what he said. No one else. I'll go. I'm fine. I'll do it. I believe in God. He doesn't let their influence, their understanding of the circumstances influence him. His brothers, they try to inform him with anger and snarkiness. What are you doing here? Why are you here? Why, what, what have you done with the sheep? You want to see the battle, don't you? In other words, go home, David. But David doesn't let that inform him. David, if you heard in the text, it says David is there out of obedience to his father. His father said, go do this, so he went. In fact, when we see David talking with the troops. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his brothers. He's there actually doing exactly what his father told them because he's a man after God's own heart and he's listening to his dad. When he shows up, his heavenly father then starts speaking and he says, I can't go home, bros, because now our heavenly father's speaking and I'm going to listen. Dad called me here, but now my heavenly father is asking me to stay and to press in. Saul, on his own, he tried twice, two times to inform David. His first time he tried, he said, you can't go. You're young. Maybe this might sound familiar to somebody. You're young. You lack purpose. You have no experience. You have no strength. Goliath is a man with experience of war, purpose, and strength. You are not able. David's like, yeah, you're right. You know what? If I let the identity of a slave of Saul be my identity marker, I'm not able. But as a servant of the Most High God who promises to deliver, it's not about me. It's about God. So then Saul kind of pivots, right? He's like, okay, great. If you're going to go, the Lord be with you, but do it my way. <laughs> I love that. Go ahead, the Lord be with you. But before you go, let me give you my armor. Let me give you what I understand how to solve problems. Let me give you my sword. Now this sword is interesting because in chapter 13, we read that all, the Philistines have the corner on the market in the metal industry, and they're not selling to the Israelites. The only two people that have swords are Saul and Jonathan. So he gives him this rare, precious tool, his understanding of how to defeat problems. Here you go. Here's my sword. David's response, I can't go like that. I haven't tested this method. That way is not known to me. I haven't been out in the wilderness with this stuff, with these ways. That's not what's tested. But what is tested is my faith. God delivered him from the lion and the bear. He responded to God and trusted in his deliverance. That way is tested. That way is found out. That's where I place my trust. So all these tools from you, Saul, are great tools. They're rare tools. David says, nope, I'm not sure that that will work here. All those around him are trying to inform him, trying to shape him, trying to tell him what to do. The Israelites say, no one can stop this giant. Brothers, why are you here? Saul, you're too small, you're too insignificant. Even Goliath, even Goliath comes to the battle 
and tries to inform him, I'm going to smoosh you like a bug, is kind of what Goliath says. David, David replies, actually, <laughs> no, you're not. He essentially says, your way of battle, like Saul's, like those weapons, that's not going to work here. That's not what this situation calls for. You see, David has a bigger vision. Goliath says, I'm going to kill you. David says, the Lord's going to deliver you and all of the Philistines this day. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Goliath is like, I'm going to kill you. David's like, no, no, God's going to take care of you and all of your friends with you. Why? So that God can get the glory. David wasn't after his own glory. He's after serving his most high God and getting his glory in all the land. David faces Philistine, his brothers, the army, the Saul. He pushed through them all. In spite of all these influences around him, David hears and sees God and he says, my faith is tested. Your wisdom is not. I had the chance to interact with several people, like I said. One person I got to meet with is Dr. Scott Hancock, who is a professor of history and Africana studies at Gettysburg College. Um, It was a great conversation. I wanted to meet with him uh, because when I look at this text, I'm only able to look at it through a white lens. I'm a white man, so that's my limited vision. Scott offers a different perspective. So I asked him a little bit about this text. We had a great conversation, and he followed up with with this really thoughtful response. I'm going to read to you a part of what he said. It's long, um, but I think you'll be able to keep up. It says, Faith often is a valuable tool for the oppressed. But at the end of the day, it's not about faith being a tool. Rather, faith is simply recognizing that ultimately it's all about who God is and who we are in comparison. David's faith wasn't only or primarily a useful mental, psychological, or behavioral tool, weapon, or approach to a situation. It may be all of those things, but those are just side benefits. And then this is the key. His faith wasn't just an internal reality. It was also, and he'd say most importantly, a recognition of an external reality, of a God who is, of a God who had, of what God had done before, And if and when God desired what God would do again. This is what we see in our text today. David's journey of faith is a tested and proven truth of of a God who is, of what God has done before, and what God would do again. And that alone informs David. David, in essence, says, I know who God is, and that's enough. There is a God out there. That's my story. David was not pursuing his own glory. I hope you caught that. This wasn't about David. Why did David step up? David stepped up to show all the people in the land, including his buddies behind him, the Israelites, (laughs) that there is a God in Israel, that there is a God alive, and that he will show his glory this day. The battle is the Lord's, and he'll give you into our hand. There must be a God somewhere. David looked at Goliath and he saw God. He saw God rescuing him from the bear. He saw God rescuing him from the lion and he knew God. He trusted God. He kept his eyes on God. That's a proper heart response. In our lives, all kinds of people will try to inform you. Inform what you should think, what you should feel, what you should do, what you should, how you should act, and even inform your very being. They want to inform who you are. Will you listen to them? This text begs us us to ask, will you listen to them or listen to the one true God? Don't let them misinform you. 
When we are called to respond, whom do we turn to, to to inform our actions? Do we listen to people that are drawing us closer to God, that are pointing us to him, that are reminding us of our faith story? Or do we turn to people that are informing us of their ways, of their self-deception, of their way of solving problems that are actually drawing us further away from God and who he is? Instead of looking anywhere else, we should be informed only by the journey of faith we have with God. We should ask questions like, what has God done in your life? How have you seen God at work? How does God speak to you? How does God lead you? When you look back over the last five years, what fingerprints of God do you see on your life? And when you reflect on that, your heart will be rightly informed. This story is not about overcoming giants or impossibilities. Rather, it's a matter of your heart and begs you to keep your eyes on Jesus. Remembering your identity him, surrendering only to his authority, and trusting in the God who has acted in your faith that he's going to act again. With a healthy heart, you're able to see, hear, respond appropriately, and you're able to step in and trust God. Like David, God has prepared something for you. He has. I don't know what that is. We're not all called to slay giants. I'm not going to try to make some sort of metaphor of what this giant is that God has in your life. I don't think that that's the point here. I think God is calling you to something, though, and he's asking you to step in. David went on an errand, and he couldn't help but to be compelled to step in. Maybe it's to be faithful in your relationship. Maybe that's what God's calling you to right now. How will you respond? Maybe it's to take a step outside of your comfort zone. Maybe it's to slow down or or show up on time for work and be present. Maybe it's to step into our foster care initiative or our refugee ministry, our awesome adventure ministry, our hospitality team. Maybe he's asking you to serve somewhere. How are you going to respond? Maybe it's to give more. How are you going to respond? Where is your heart? I don't know what that thing is for you, but God is calling you to step in and not by your own strength or your might. The question is, how does your heart inform what you're seeing and what you're hearing and ultimately how you're responding? I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. As I do, our our worship team, you guys can come up. Um, I think it's appropriate that we end our time here in a song, singing as brothers and sisters, of our brothers and sisters that have gone before us, singing of our song, a story of faith, and keeping our eyes on Christ, because that's the point of our story. So let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for the work that you are doing in the lives of your people. Each and every one of us have people or things that are tugging at us for our identity, that are trying to claim some sort of authority over us, that are trying to inform us and shape our hearts. Lord, I ask that you would rightly align those things in our lives. Help us, Lord, to find our identity in you. And to not just say it, but to live it, to claim it, to breathe it. It is a good gift. Help us to embrace that in a real authentic way. Help us to surrender to your authority. We hate authority. Lord, forgive us. Help us to surrender to your authority, God. And help us to look to you and our godly brothers and sisters who know you and who are walking with you so that we can be informed well, so that our hearts can respond to what you are calling us to step in. And Lord, we ask this for your glory so that people may know that there is a God in the West Shore and beyond. For your glory, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.